Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valves. Live from York, this is The Late Show with Christopher Valls on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello everyone and welcome to the Sunday Late Show. I speak to you today from that surreal place that is the other side. Don't worry, you haven't accidentally caught me mid-seance. This isn't that kind of podcast. There are plenty of those available elsewhere. What I mean when I speak of the other side, of course, is the other side of public examinations. That surprisingly is known to some as dead time, as I discovered today. A strange time of year when year 11 and year 13 have finally finished the lengthy slog of revision and exam room timed writing. When leavers events and their associated traditions have run their course, when those short touching conversations with now ex-students have been successfully negotiated as they thank you for teaching them and share their plans for an action-packed summer before disappearing off to various festivals, get-togethers and holiday jobs. One student who's off to study English literature at university told me, amongst other things, she would never forget that a good English literature essay conclusion always begins with the word ultimately. It's sometimes surprising to see precisely which taught knowledge gets upgraded from advice to commandment in its peculiar post-A-level afterlife. For the last two months, the library had been full of students, rehearsing flashcards, quizzing each other on the causes of the English Civil War, poring over Latin literature translations, scribbling out practice essay plans, repeating lists of key quotations from English set texts, deciphering the weird hieroglyphics that come with physics past papers, trying to come to terms with arguments for and against free will, and trying to make sense of the British unwritten constitution. On Friday afternoon, this same space was utterly empty as the last patient souls sat in the exam hall, completing a combination of science and languages exams. 
So empty was the library, in fact, that the sound of blinds rattling against the window frame in the warm North Yorkshire breeze briefly conjured up the impression that the polished tables of the sixth form study area were still populated, that there were still students with stuff to learn. Closer inspection, however, revealed the truth that an empty library remains an uncanny place. Auden, Byron, Dickinson, Eliot, Ferlinghetti, Graves, Hughes and all the others remain silent between their cloth-bound covers on the unvisited shelves. Their foreign language counterparts remained more silent still, if such a thing might be imagined. It was a full hour into this week's Friday afternoon library duty before three Year 7 students, perhaps encouraged by the new quietness and the clear sunlight patterning the carpet through the leaded window panes, came whispering towards the fiction section to sit and read together to choose some books to take home for the holidays. They sat and read, while I sat and read an anthology of new poems that Year 11 will need to study for their literature exams next year, a challenging blend of canonical and barely known poets from the 17th to the 20th century, all trying to give new voice to old sentiments on the theme of love and sacrifice. This will be something of a change from previous collections about death and the elegy. As public exams have slowly wound to their conclusion, there have been internal end-of-year exams to set, mark and grade. This term, Year 9 have been revising Macbeth and was set a passage analysis task on Macbeth's soldiering, as described by the dying captain in Act 1. They were then asked to have a go at describing Banquo's prowess on the battlefield as one of the trusty band fighting off Macdonald the Norwegians and the treacherous Thane of Cawdor. Needless to say, there were quite a few reluctant soldiers who didn't quite know what they were fighting for. A number of foot soldiers who thought that Commander Banquo deserved a bigger write-up for his deeds in the face of the enemy. And a series of protracted and gravity-defying swordplay episodes that would have translated wonderfully to Saturday early evening television in the period between 1987 and 1992. Grades are due to go out next week as we prepare for the final six days of academic year 2021 to 22. When the students depart, the planning for next year begins. There are timetables to be finalised by heads of department and the inevitable questions of, Sir, do you know who is teaching us next year? There are retirement and leaving events for various members of staff who are going in different directions in August. There are new syllabuses to be resourced, books to be ordered, rooms to be emptied and cleaned. There are annual review meetings to be held as we all take stock of the peculiar circumstances of the last 21 months. There are new IT skills to be acquired as we try to enhance our educational technology offer to meet the needs of new entrants who will still be adjusting to the challenges of balancing online and offline learning as September 2022 approaches. So although the library in the classrooms might be a little bit emptier than usual, the planner pages are still filling up. Next term, of course, may be eight weeks away, but it is only seven working days away for me now. 
I'm attending the Idler Festival in London in mid-July to pick up some more ideas about how to conduct some workshops on nonsense poetry and how to live the good life a little better. There's a lot of reading to catch up with in those eight weeks too. And I simply must put in some time at the chessboard as my blitz rating has taken a battering in the last fortnight. Having recently agreed to join the online college chess club, I'm currently drawing hope from Jose Roal Capablanca's observation that you may learn much more from a game you lose than from a game you win. You will have to lose hundreds of games before becoming a good player. Elsewhere, the east coast of North Yorkshire has been transformed this week as Scarborough played host to the National Armed Forces Day event on Saturday. Spectators turned out in their tens of thousands to see the RAF, Army, Royal Navy, Royal Marines and Rescue Services put on a wonderful display of teamwork, aerial agility, nautical expertise, marksmanship and musicianship. Highlights included the Red Arrows performing the kind of stunt flying for which they are renowned, a Battle of Britain fly past, and the Royal Marines Band parading around the South Bay to the strains of a life on the ocean wave. For those like me who couldn't attend the event, the live stream provided by the British Forces Broadcasting Service not only captured the pomp and the ceremony of events on a wonderfully sunny and clear afternoon, but also featured a number of powerful interviews with servicemen and women drawn from across the armed forces and from the armed forces reserves. Although, by its own admission, primarily a war-fighting organisation, the British Army alone is currently deployed in South Sudan, Mali, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Baltics, Belize, Brunei, Canada, Cyprus, the Falklands, Germany, Gibraltar, Iraq, engaged in everything from armed peacekeeping and training international allies to anti-poaching assignments and supporting relief efforts in the aftermath of natural and humanitarian disasters. In terms of people, the British Army currently comprises 82,000 regular personnel or full-time professional soldiers as we might recognise them, 30,000 reserve personnel and 12,000 civilian personnel. When one considers the family units from which these services personnel are drawn, it is clear that the armed forces community extends well beyond the men and women in uniform. After the news, I speak to one of those men in uniform, British Army Reservist Lance Corporal Anthony Crocker, in an interview recorded earlier this week. In our conversation, Anthony talks about the challenges and the rewards of holding down a full-time teaching job with a deployable role in the British Army Reserves. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, 
podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.weatherslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. Stevewoods.co.uk for educational support in IT and computer science. Coming up, I'm delivering a number of courses. Learn to program in Python is a free one-hour course designed to start you on your way into Python coding. Everything works in a browser, so there's nothing to install beforehand. Join me remotely to learn the basics on Wednesday the 8th of June, 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Visit stevewoods.co.uk to start your journey. Are you a state school teacher in England? Why not be a hero this half-term and join me for two days and receive up to 1360 £60 in bursary. Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at stevewoods.co.uk. Here at Witherslack Group, we are celebrating the launch of our new Luxborough Court School in Chigwell, Essex, with a very special one-day autism conference titled Enabling Inspirational Education. Taking place on Wednesday the 29th of June from 10am at Luxborough Court School, our event is dedicated to providing practical advice to education professionals working with neurodiverse children and young people. The event is free to attend and presentations on the day will focus on creating cultures of aspiration and excellence, supporting the emotional well-being of pupils, autism-friendly classrooms and managing challenging behaviour. So, whether you're looking to add to your extensive understanding or are new to SEN and wanting to build your knowledge, our conference will offer an amazing opportunity to engage with experts and network with colleagues from across the sector. Don't miss your chance to claim your free ticket and we hope you can join us for what's sure to be a fantastic day. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash events to register or contact events at withaslackgroup.co.uk for more information. This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. London, Sadiq Khan, has called for all pupils in primary schools to receive free school meals. He wants an urgent expansion of the scheme to include all students in years 3, 4 and 5, regardless of household income. He said, free school meals were something my family relied upon and every child in London deserves that safety net. With the summer holidays on the horizon, it is essential that the government act now to reinstate the meal voucher system to give families dignity and nutritional choice over the summer. This should then be followed by the introduction of universal free school meals for all primary school children from the start of the new school year in September. Multiple London councils are already leading the way on this 
and showing what can be done if we put the health and well-being of our young people first in such perilous economic times. It is time for the government to step up. Official figures show that inflation reached 9% in April as the cost of food, energy and transport surges and is expected to reach 11% later this year. Polling by YouGov found that 83% of adults in London say their household cost of living has increased over the last six months. The NAS UWT Teachers Union is calling for a 12% pay increase for teachers this year and has said it will ballot members in England, Wales and Scotland for industrial action if its demands are not met. Dr Patrick Roach, NAS UWT General Secretary said, Teachers are suffering, not only from the cost of living crisis, which the whole country is grappling with, but 12 years of real terms pay cuts, which has left a 20% shortfall in the value of their salaries. If the government and the pay review body reject a positive programme of restorative pay awards for teachers, then we will be asking our members whether they are prepared to take national industrial action in response. The government wrongly assumed teachers would simply stand by as they erode pay and strip our education system to the bone. But this weekend, thousands of teachers from every corner of the UK joined together to demonstrate our strength, unity and determination to stand up and to fight back. Our message is clear and has now been delivered directly to the government on their doorstep. We will not allow cuts to our members' pay and attacks on their pensions. If a pay rise is not awarded, it will be won by our members in workplaces through industrial action. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, in this week's Two Minute Tech, we're going to look at how smart is a smart pen. Smart pens and notebooks are a bit of tech that make your handwritten notes become more useful and more importantly, digitally accessible. There are three main technologies used, app-based, image capture-based and real-time capture. Today is a look at the thinking process you can apply when looking at a new gadget. Obviously, the first decision I always make is not going to be considered. That being, is it a gadget? Yes, then I need it. Throughout this, the trusty spreadsheet will assist to calculate cost. Going as cheap as possible, I found a diary and 10 pens delivered for $5.99. So that is my baseline. If I wanted an academic planner, the baseline would obviously increase. So, what's the next cheapest but digital option? I found a reusable wipe clean diary. This is a few different formats, but a decent one I saw was a calendar template on one side and a line template on the other. Both were wiped clean. You downloaded an app on your phone to take a picture. The app recognized the diary entries and the handwriting and then converted it to digital. There's a lot of different makes on the market, so do compare and read reviews. A guide price would be around £40 and a quick calculation in my spreadsheet says it would take six years to match the cost of a cheap diary. My question there is, will it last that long? 
Also, at this point, it is worth noting that there are free apps out there that let you do the same with your ordinary diary. So really, the cheapest way to go digital is to use a free app and take a picture of what you already have. If you still want a new gadget, your decision may depend on if you feel a big lump of plastic is more environmentally friendly or you prefer the features of the capture app that's being used over a free one. The final technology is real-time note-taking. Now, when I saw this, I instantly needed one. Then I remembered I type everything or use voice capture for meetings, so I'd never use it. However, that is not a reason not to want one. This more expensive tech uses a special pen and notebook and communicates in real time with an app so you can see what you're writing on screen as well as in the book. Also, like the others, it will recognize handwriting and convert to digital characters to allow pasting into other applications. At £110 for a notepad, the pen and the app, it isn't cheap, taking 18 years to break even and with the cheapest replacement notebook costing £16 as well, this will actually never break even. In conclusion, I recommend you stick to your diary and find an app you like to capture it. Or, if you have a laptop with touchscreen, you probably can do all of this anyway. For me, smart pens are not that smart when it comes to price. You do get what you pay for, though. Do you have a smart pen? Why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022 and follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech? I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. Tonight we're talking about life as a teacher and as a British Army reservist with Lance Corporal Anthony Crocker. Here's the first half of an interview recorded earlier this week. After welcoming Anthony to the show, I asked him to tell us about how he ended up in two such demanding public service roles at once. And here's what he said. Fantastic. Anthony, so would you like to start off then by giving us an overview of your university career and tell us how you got into working with the Army Reserve in the first place? Yeah, so um, I started university sort of straight after um, A-levels as uh, sort of is quite traditional. Um, I studied history at the University of the West of England in Bristol. Um, um, whilst I was there, you sort of have the, the eternal problem of what to do for some extra cash for your uni. Um, and I sort of thought, you know, I could go and get a bar job. And uh, my family's got quite a quite a, a military history. Um, I've got several relatives um, in, in the military over the years, going back uh, quite a long way. So it seemed almost natural um, for that to be something I'd consider eventually. Um, I didn't initially consider doing it as the reserves. I was initially considering um, going into the regular army post-university. Um, but while I was there, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll give the reserves a, a shot. Um, I ended up joining... Um, a Royal Engineers unit in uh, October 2006 um, and then from there um, I haven't really sort of stopped and in the blink of an eye 16 years later I'm, I'm, I'm still going with it so what was initially an opportunity to do something interesting at weekends and in my spare time for some extra money um, has sort of transformed into something that is it's a big part of my life but at the same time um, there's definitely skills that, that cross-pollinate between my civilian role as a teacher and the, the military role I do with the amount of instructional work that I do. Fantastic. You have to say a little bit about your family background in the armed forces. Um, yeah, so um, my my grandfather, um, I've got quite an interesting story on that actually that I didn't mention uh, when we spoke the other night. Um, I had two great-grandfathers on opposite sides in the western desert. Um, so I'm Italian on my uh, father's side. I'm a quarter Italian. Um, so I had one great-grandfather in the Italian army in the Western Desert and one great-grandfather in the uh, British army. Um, my grandfather served, um, my other great-grandfather served as well, funnily enough, in the Royal Engineers and spent some time on the 
on the northwest frontier of India, which is obviously now Afghanistan. So it seems to have been a little bit of a, a family affair. Um, but I think having having been brought up by my grandfather um, and essentially be, being given a, a 1930s upbringing in, in sort of like the 90s, um, I think that, that those sort of cornerstones of, of discipline and um, sort of self-management and time management are things that I think if, if I didn't have it, then uh, life could have been very different for me. So what was it that caused you to follow the reserves rather than go into the regular forces? Um, it was more the case of, of time management uh, at the time. So I was still um, studying uh, my university degree. Um, and initially it was the appeal of a way to earn some extra money at uni while doing something I was interested in. Um, it was then when I, when I came to leave university that I, I really had a real desire to uh, at least experience doing it for real so that I could hold my head up around the, around the regular soldiers. Um, and it was at that point that I actually volunteered to, to go to Afghanistan, which I, which I did in 2010. And if we think about the lead up to that, how was it that you managed to balance your training as a reserve soldier? And a reserve soldier, in most cases, has to be ready to be deployed at some notice, one would suspect, with the rest of your university studies. During my university studies, so from, I was at university from 2005 until 2008. Um, so from 2006 until mid-2007, I was still in training. So, I mean, training due to the nature of, of the part-time element of it does, can and does take a lot longer. So in terms of the deployability aspect, that, that really wasn't a concern. Um, I think I only became deployable, I would suggest, towards the end of 2007. And then I left university in 2008. Um, and it was at that point that I, I looked towards getting a, a sort of a normal civilian job. I went and worked for uh, Virgin Megastores for a little bit just for, uh, to fill a gap um, because it was my intent to pursue a teaching career at that point. But I felt like I wanted to do something different. And I felt like I put so much time into the reserves at that point and so much effort to get myself fit, to get myself um, motivated, to be able to, to remember all of the extra content that you taught. Um, I sort of wanted to test myself and see if I could actually do it for real. So if that's the case, why did you decide to take this route into teaching then? Um, in terms of going and doing some of the things with the regular army first? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I quite passionate believe, passionate believe in life experience. And I think at the time, if I'm being completely self-reflective, I probably wasn't mature enough for a teaching career straight out of university. Um, and it might seem slightly extreme for people to think that volunteering for an operational tour in a war zone um, is a way of growing up. Um, it certainly did that. Um, and it wasn't just the tour itself. It was the pre-deployment training, the you know the increased expectations, the meeting new people, some of whom had done three, four operational tours of Afghanistan, Iraq. Um, I think we even had some guys that had um, maybe done the tail end of um, the Falklands, some of the really older guys. Um, so to be surrounded by people of, of that pedigree, um, within the military environment as a sort of 23, 24-year-old kid, um, you had to grow up quickly because at the time, which was uh, 2010, um, 2010 was quite a, quite a serious period um, for the British Army in Afghanistan, and they certainly weren't going to take anyone that they thought was going to be a danger. Uh, so it certainly made me grow up, and I feel like having come back from that and having sort of gone school, college, university, and had a real job in, in civilian life, and then gone and done what, what I did with the military, it put me in a really good position um, to be a lot more well-rounded when it came for me to apply for my PGCE. And what was the PGCE application process like? Um, after what i just done, I found it quite easy, actually. <laughs> um, 
but it was it was certainly different um and it was quite a, a big adjustment to come back to um all of a sudden having to read up on things like differentiation which was wasn't a word i'd really heard of um to go into the pgc interview and it was certainly a case of asking around to people who i knew had done it but i was quite passionate about wanting to teach and having come from um a very working class background myself i was quite passionate about being in, being in a position to be able to change things for younger people um and i just felt that that, that growing up period for me was incredibly formative uh, and i'd be a very different person had i not done it so it brought all these different skills perhaps to the discipline of teacher training perhaps that one wouldn't have had straight from university no and i think having having done what i'd done and and having come back and sort of uh, got through it and managed to, to cope really well with everything um from having to learn a full-time job that i'd done part-time in a very very uh, very very quickly and if you think sort of i still remember like again back to working at virgin and things like that you when you work somewhere like that and you've got the part-time staff in it's like oh you know so and so doesn't know what they're doing so they're a part-timer if you sort of extrapolate that into a war zone there isn't really isn't really room for that um so the, the skills to be able to sort of react to stressors quickly and be able to problem solve and also to be able to drive yourself to learn um it wasn't easy i did my pgc at the university of bath which was um, an m-level pgc um, so there was a real uh, increased expectation in the amount of reading and i suppose in in one way maybe the people that had come straight from uh, their undergraduate straight onto it had an advantage that they were still in practice where I'd, I'd been off doing something incredibly different um but i would i would suggest that, that again for, for me personally um it was it was a very valuable experience and it was something that it, it definitely made me a, a better human being and a better teacher overall now were you following the training route where you were placed in two schools during your training yeah, so it was uh, free placements, uh, initial placement, off to another, and then back to the initial. And what were those schools like? Uh, very, very different. Um, I don't actually know if one of them is still there anymore. Um, but yeah, very, very different, actually. I went to one school uh, down near Salisbury, which was... Um, another military town, of course. Yeah, which was quite interesting, actually, because my <laughs> I saw a surname on the register, and it turned out to be the daughter of one of the guys who took me through recruit training. Um, who was the world's uh, the world's biggest Fijian gentleman? Um, he was an absolute hero. Uh, I've got some great stories about him. Probably not for this uh, these means, um, but um, yeah, and then from there, which was quite interesting because it was very much a rural school but with urban problems, um, mm. and it, I just think due to the transient population, there were a lot of issues with um, progress, and you were always having children sort of rocking up in your lessons, and, and you were trying to work out okay, what's your starting point? What you've done at your last school. Um, particularly because at the time the army was coming out of Germany, so we had a lot of kids coming from from the German garrisons back to the UK. Um, and I then went to a, a school in Bath, very very high achieving school in Bath, um, all boys school, which was a complete completely different um, real emphasis for sport. Uh, and I really enjoyed both placements. I thought it was quite good having the um, the two to complement each other. Fantastic. If we think about this school in Salisbury again, you mentioned this idea of integrating children as they move kind of through the forces education system to some degree. Some will be potentially in schools in garrison towns abroad. Some will be, I, I teach a few students in my own school, in my boarding school, who are the children of armed services personnel. What kind of challenges did you find they faced as they were being reintegrated into the British education system back here in Blighty? Um, I'll be honest, I think it was more having to drop into a scheme of work at the halfway point 
and and not necessarily having done it before. I, the, the easiest way that I can equate to it is when you sort of get your new shiny year sevens through the door, um, particularly as a history teacher, you're trying to work out what you've studied at primary. And it can be anything from Vikings to Egyptians to, and then sometimes you've got the students who you start doing your initial modules in year seven, and they're like, we've already done this. And it's like, okay, I've now got to differentiate the class for you six because you've already done this. Um, very, very similar. Um, I think the only the only real problem for the, uh, the forces children coming in is they were doing it every two years. Mm. So if you imagine that sort of like year six to year seven transition, um, potentially if you're looking at people being posted every two to three years, um, they're, they're, they're making that move. By the time they settle, they're up and moving. Um, so I think, I feel like it was quite a challenge for them to settle. Um, having said that, though, some of the forces children that I um, that I taught uh, were some of the most driven um, individuals because I felt like they were determined to do well, despite the fact they were sort of being shuttled every two to three years. And I know that now there are, um, particularly with boarding schools, it does tend to be more for the officers, but I know there's funding in place to allow students to stay in the same school for a lot longer, even if the, um, the mother or the father are moving around you to work. Yeah, so it's an option that I think might have been taken for me when I was younger. My my father was um, a soldier in the Marines, and you know my parents did quite for some time discuss the issue of boarding school as a potential option. It wasn't chosen in the end because my mother also happens to be a teacher. Yeah, they wanted to keep fairly close tabs on what I was learning throughout my time in school. But most of my cousins who were children of serving officers in the Navy and the Air Force spent their time growing up in boarding schools both in the UK and abroad actually so there's there's a there's quite a significant I don't quite know how to phrase it a, quite a significant uh well I suppose it's a, it's a challenge about growing up isn't it a sense of finding your roots and knowing knowing where you are my father did um, travel around because his father was also in the Marines and he he went from school to school quite a lot a challenge of feeling that you're safe and settled for a place yeah I feel, I, feel, I feel like you've got um some of the uh so for instance i know a lot of the i taught a couple of few nepalese students at one school i've worked at and um particularly with the fijian students as well i felt like they they always had a community sort of ready-made um that they could drop into mm. i think it was a, because um a lot just because culturally um a lot of the fijians and nepalese um will tend to have their own little communities within the garrison um, and I find that they they possibly find it easier to integrate because they would drop in and they would know somebody or they'd at least have some more common language, a common culture, and there would be those sort of those lily pads to land on. Um, I had other students who had you know been born in Germany, and you know they'd been born in Germany and they potentially gone from Germany to the UK, back to Germany, back to the UK. Um, so it was I felt like it was potentially harder for them, um, but it's it's a problem now that you, you, you know see a conundrum to fix where. A day doesn't seem to go by on some of the teacher Facebook groups that I'm on where you've got people asking for advice with Ukrainian students arriving. Yeah. Um, and, and, and trying to work out how to integrate these 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 people and to, and to give them an experience um, of education worthy of, 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 you know, us accommodating them and with the problems that they've been through. Um, so it is, I, I feel that the, 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 the conundrum of children arriving in your lessons, not uh, having having sort of done previous knowledge will be something that is probably going to be around until the end of time for teachers and it's up to us to try to mitigate those problems yeah i agree so you you complete your history training you become a history teacher 
isn't it quite convenient for a secondary history teacher also to have a reserve army career? Because there's quite a conflict in the history curriculum at secondary level. Yeah, I, I tend to keep my um, my reserve service and my teaching job as separate as I can, whilst trying to cross pollinate the uh, the skills that I can take from them. Mm. Um, if I'm honest, um, it's not it's it's not something I keep secret. At the same time, it's not something that I that I would massively shout about. Um, I I feel that what I get from each job complements the other. Um, and I'm finding that with the with the job I'm doing this week. Um, so I, I've been released by my school for a few days um, to come up and actually teach um, regular soldiers how to instruct. Um, and it was due to me literally speaking to my head and saying, look, I know you need some planning done. I'll do it. I don't want to see LR for it, but I'd like some time off to go and pursue what I do. And I know that having essentially spent a week now um, doing what I can only describe as adult education, because um, for some of these, I've got seven individuals on a course at the moment that I'm taking, uh, and it's essentially upskilling them to be instructors. And I know that some of them have never stood up in front of a room before. Um, some of them have never even considered about the effects that uh, specific learning difficulties can have on an individual. And when the, I think the average age of a, of a soldier joining the British Army, sorry, the average reading age of a soldier joining the British Army these days is, I believe it's less than 16. That's, that's an open fact. Um, so it's something that we need to consider when we're, you, you can't expect somebody with a reading age of 15 that when you then take them on to a first aid lesson and you start going on about oral transmucosal fentanyl sulfate, it, it becomes a, it then becomes a slight, a slight issue. Citrate, not sulfate. <laughs> so we'll, we'll explore the idea about teaching within the military or training within the military in a little while. But could you talk us through then how the deployment process works when you're employed in a school? What kind of conversations or negotiations have to happen between you, the army, and your SLT to make sure that so, you've got the space to do both? So I think it's quite important to, to differentiate here between between a deployment and sort of normal military training. Um, so a deployment, which I would suggest to many of your listeners, would be um, kit out the door and it's some form of, of operation, some form of war. That's how I understand a deployment anyway. Um, whether it's an operational deployment or non-operational, that, that tends to be, okay, you are a reservist, you signed on the line, there is a role to fill, and actually you need to go and do it. Um, that happening is is incredibly, incredibly rare where people are directed. The only time that I have ever heard of somebody being directed um, to deploy was when I believe they were the only person in the entire British Army that, that held the capability that they did. Um, and it was a case of, if you don't go, there's nobody to do it, <coughs> so we're going to send you. Um, in terms of like normal military training, the, the role that I'm in, again, I deconflict my role with the um, reserves and work by trying to do things during term time where possible. Um, it's not always possible, and I'll be absolutely honest, and that has potentially harmed my inverted commas military career in terms of promotion. I'm going to be absolutely honest about that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie about it, um, mainly due to the fact that um, the, the military being the military, they tend to not run courses during school holidays. It's not always, it just tends to be. Now, the unit that I transferred into, so I'm now in, uh, I've got quite an interesting role, so I'm actually a military working dog handler. Um, so I get to go in and work with the military working dogs, which I consider to be an absolute privilege. Um, th those animals, I'm pretty sure some of them are actually brighter than me. Um, but being able to work with them um, is a real privilege, and actually to be able to get into this unit is, is not easy. Now, the contract that I'm on here is what's called a national contract. So officially i only have to serve 19 days a year um last year i did 62 
So in order for me to essentially, what's that, nigh on quadruple um, my commitment, it must be something I enjoy. Um, mm. My unit is three hours from my home address. Um, so for me to get in the car at four o'clock in the morning and to drive up here last Saturday, in order to do my reserve role, it's something I've got to be motivated for. Um, yes, I do get paid, but I will be honest, the pay, very similarly to teaching, you're not doing this for the money. Mm-hmm. The, the, the amount of, of, of commitment um, and in order to learn as well the trade, because quite frankly, we are on a, a camp with the regulars. So we've got one reserve squadron and we've got three regular squadrons. We're a little bit of a, an anomaly in that. Usually reserves tend to be located together. Um, so we are permanently in the eye of the regulars. Um, so you kind of can't mess up. Your, your drills can't be substandard because you will get called out on it. Because for these guys, it's their full-time job and they take just as much pride in, in their professionalism as we do as teachers. Um, so in terms of deconflicting my reserve role with my um, civilian role, um, I can fit this into school holidays mainly because there is always work on this camp because the dogs still need to be, you know, worked with, fed, walked, administered all year round. So um, a friend of mine in the squadron who's also a teacher, um, he has not got the family ties that I've got. So he actually spent the last Christmas and New Year up here. And that made him very popular among the the regular soldiers because it meant that one of them didn't have to do Christmas and New Year duty. Mm. And it's the same when I've come up in the summer before. It's like, oh, okay, so so so-and-so can now go and have two weeks off in the summer. So uh, I won't pretend that it's easy across the entire Army Reserve, um, but to to deconflict being a teacher because by the sheer nature of the fact that we have locked-in holidays, you you miss out on things if they're not in those blocks. Um, What I will say is I wouldn't have done it for 16 years if I didn't enjoy it, and I wouldn't have have spent the last sort of five years with military working dogs and been able to make it work with my teaching career um, if it wasn't something that was practical. So do any of your colleagues find that there are sometimes conflicts when it comes to around exam time? Uh, I don't take leave during exam time. So so my, my last exam was last Thursday, and I came up here on Saturday morning um, because when I spoke to my head, I said, look, I want to run a course, I want to do this. It will cross-pollinate skills, but I'm not going to join exam season because um, that's just – it's already a big ask. If you're going to go in and ask for time off work when you already get 13 weeks off the year, there needs to be some kind of, of exchange. It's not just something you can go in and demand. And that makes us very different to a friend of mine who's in the reserves as well, who's a taxi driver. And he can get a phone call on 12 hours notice that there is an exercise or an opportunity happening and he just doesn't drive his cab. Um, so th- there are some professions that are more compatible with reserve service than others. Teaching is diff- is more difficult than others to make work, but if you're committed to it, then you'll make it work. And it's something that, you know, again, there is a financial aspect of it as well, but it's not massive. Um, and I certainly wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. And it also motivates me to do things like keep myself fit because I will end up just sat on the sofa doing nothing. And if I know that I've got a fitness test looming, it, um, it does keep me honest in terms of uh, gym work and making sure I keep myself up to speed. So what is the actual time commitment across the year then? You're able to explain how that works for our listeners. Uh, yeah, so there's, there's, two, there's two types of commitment. Um, most units are on what's called a national commitment, which is 28 days a year. Um, because I've got such a niche role, um, there are other niche roles as well, um, such as uh, there's a cyber, there's a cyber department um, that are also niche, that's 19 days a year. Uh, there's a railway unit bizarrely that another friend of mine is in which is 19 days a year because the idea of a national unit is it's a base location where you can pull the um, national skills into one place 
uh, most people will be on what's called um, a regional contract, which is 28 days. Um, whether you're regional or national, you have to do a two-week block in a year. I think it's a minimum of 12 days on, on in Queen's Reg, but don't, uh, don't hold me to that. Um, so, for instance, this year, I uh, did my block by over the Easter holidays. I went and instructed on a phase one course for new reserve recruits coming through the door um, and taught them everything from first aid all the way through to the ceremonial drill aspect. Okay, and once the training is complete and you are deployed, what kind of service support is there for the families and the employers who are staying behind in the UK? Uh, in terms of a foreign deployment, when, when I deployed, and I, and I will be absolutely upfront and say it was 12 years ago now, um, when I went and did an operational deployment, uh, there was a lot of support. Um, there was, you always have what's called the, the rear party, so the rear echelon, so you will have a proportion of the unit that doesn't go, <clears throat> and they actually manage everything in camp. So they will manage everything from making sure families are all right, um, all the way through to uh, making sure that lines of communication stay open. I know that when I deployed, I never had a problem getting a letter and never had a problem getting a phone call. Um, even in the middle, the middle of literally the middle of nowhere, we had a sat phone. And all we did is we just booked it out and you could only ever book 20 minutes at a time. And that's the way you would sort of contact home. Um, there was also a blue network as well, which is essentially uh, you can type an email on the Internet and it prints out like a payslip and you get that delivered out to wherever you were. Um, in terms of like employers, it's not something I know a lot about. Um, but I do know that there are financial incentives for employers if you have soldiers that get mobilised. Um, it's not something I'd like to comment too much on because I don't, I don't actually know a lot about it. Mm. Um, because at the time when I deployed, I didn't have any intention of going back to my civilian job. Mm -hmm. So I deployed knowing that when I came back, I was going to apply for my PGCE. Um, so it wasn't something I paid an awful lot of attention to. Um, what I will say is is that the the welfare side and the, and the looking after people side, and particularly the... Um, being a being a sort of uh, for want of a better word a combat first aid instructor, um, one thing I've noticed is that the uh, operational stress management and the mental side of things um, that has definitely improved massively in the last ten to twelve years. It was just starting to come in um, when I did, when I went and uh, we were all offered it when we came home. Sort of essentially, it's called trimming, but it was essentially trauma management. It was essentially a form of um, light touch counselling, um, and everybody was offered that um, when we came back. Um, so the actual sort of support package around the soldier, and you're not differentiated between whether you're a reservist or a regular if you deploy, um, it's definitely um, it's definitely improved um, significantly so from maybe what you were looking at in sort of 2003 with the Iraq war. Um, the employer side isn't something I can really comment on, uh, but I do know that employers do have a leave of appeal if you if you get sort of mobilised. There isn't a there isn't the sort of situation where people are just going to get you know they go to a classroom on a Monday and get plucked out on a Tuesday. It's a lot. It's a lot bigger process than that, um, and I think people have this. Um, and I do wonder if sometimes it's a reason why, not just myself but friends of mine have maybe not got job interviews because I feel like there's this misconception mm. that if someone's in the reserves, they could walk into work on Monday and then not be there on Tuesday. Um, and I would suggest that unless you're some form of special forces lunatic that that they're going to send you know send on some wild mission because you're the only person that can do it. Um, I would suggest that's probably not true, and it's just become one of these sort of bits of heresy that's been accepted. Yeah, so perhaps there needs to be a sense of a clearer message about the nature of what reserve service requires of people, so that employers can can make a sensible decision rather than one based on a misconception. Potentially, potentially, yeah. 
Okay, thank you. That's a really good introduction to um, the work you've been doing. We're going to go now to the news, and then in the second half of the show, we'll we'll look a bit more at that stuff you've been doing with teaching recruits and how teaching in the army translates to teaching in the classroom and vice versa, perhaps, if that sounds a good direction to go in. Yeah, sounds fantastic. Perfect. So we'll go to the news now and then we'll be straight back. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Imagine a world where you were free to focus on sparking curiosity in your students and giving them access to the awe and wonder of learning. A world where you were supported to deliver a truly personalised education to help all your learners achieve their potential. No need to imagine it, because that's exactly what the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service delivers. Seamlessly integrating curriculum, resources, assessment, next steps and professional development, every component of Oxford Smart is connected and working to provide you with a uniquely coherent and responsive service that empowers you and your students with transformational effect. The Oxford Smart Curriculum Service. When everything connects, anything is possible. SteveWoods.co.uk for educational support in IT and computer science. Coming up, I'm delivering a number of courses. Learn to program in Python is a free one-hour course designed to start you on your way into Python coding. Everything works in a browser, so there's nothing to install beforehand. Join me remotely to learn the basics on Wednesday the 8th of June, 4 o'clock to 5 o'clock. Visit SteveWoods.co.uk to start your journey. Are you a state school teacher in England? Why not be a hero this half-term and join me for two days and receive up to 1,360 pounds in bursary. Terms and conditions apply. Find out more at stevewoods.co.uk. Here at Witherslack Group, we are celebrating the launch of our new Luxborough Court School in Chickwell, Essex, with a very special one-day autism conference titled Enabling Inspirational Education. Taking place on Wednesday the 29th of June from 10am at Luxborough Court School, our event is dedicated to providing practical advice to education professionals working with neurodiverse children and young people. The event is free to attend and presentations on the day will focus on creating cultures of aspiration and excellence, supporting the emotional well-being of pupils, autism-friendly classrooms and managing challenging behaviour. So, whether you're looking to add to your extensive understanding or are new to SEN and wanting to build your knowledge, our conference will offer an amazing opportunity to engage with experts and network with colleagues from across the sector. Don't miss your chance to claim your free ticket and we hope you can join us for what's sure to be a fantastic day. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash events to register or contact events at witherslackgroup.co.uk for more information. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. The Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, 
has called for all pupils in primary schools to receive free school meals. He wants an urgent expansion of the scheme to include all students in years 3, 4 and 5, regardless of household income. He said, free school meals were something my family relied upon and every child in London deserves that safety net. With the summer holidays on the horizon, it is essential that the government act now to reinstate the meal voucher system to give families dignity and nutritional choice over the summer. This should then be followed by the introduction of universal free school meals for all primary school children from the start of the new school year in September. Multiple London councils are already leading the way on this and showing what can be done if we put the health and well-being of our young people first in such perilous economic times. It is time for the government to step up. Official figures show that inflation reached 9% in April as the cost of food, energy and transport surges and is expected to reach 11% later this year. Polling by YouGov found that 83% of adults in London say their household cost of living has increased over the last six months. The NAS UWT Teachers Union is calling for a 12% pay increase for teachers this year and has said it will ballot members in England, Wales and Scotland for industrial action if its demands are not met. Dr Patrick Roach, NAS UWT General Secretary said, Teachers are suffering, not only from the cost of living crisis, which the whole country is grappling with, but 12 years of real terms pay cuts, which has left a 20% shortfall in the value of their salaries. If the government and the pay review body reject a positive programme of restorative pay awards for teachers, then we will be asking our members whether they're prepared to take national industrial action in response. The government wrongly assumed teachers would simply stand by as they erode pay and strip our education system to the bone. But this weekend, thousands of teachers from every corner of the UK joined together to demonstrate our strength, unity and determination to stand up and to fight back. Our message is clear and has now been delivered directly to the government on their doorstep. We will not allow cuts to our members' pay and attacks on their pensions. If a pay rise is not awarded, it will be won by our members in workplaces through industrial action. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, in this week's Two Minute Tech, we're going to look at how smart is a smart pen. Smart pens and notebooks are a bit of tech that make your handwritten notes become more useful and more importantly, digitally accessible. There are three main technologies used, app-based, image capture-based and real-time capture. Today is a look at the thinking process you can apply when looking at a new gadget. Obviously, the first decision I always make is not going to be considered, that being 
Is it a gadget? Yes, then I need it. Throughout this, the trusty spreadsheet will assist to calculate cost. Going as cheap as possible, I found a diary and 10 pens delivered for 5.99. So that is my baseline. If I wanted an academic planner, the baseline would obviously increase. So what's the next cheapest but digital option? I found a reusable wipe clean diary. This is a few different formats, but a decent one I saw was a calendar template on one side and a line template on the other. Both were wipe clean. You downloaded an app on your phone to take a picture. The app recognized the diary entries and the handwriting and then converted it to digital. There's a lot of different makes on the market, so do compare and read reviews. A guide price would be around 40 pounds and a quick calculation in my spreadsheet says it would take six years to match the cost of a cheap diary. My question there is, will it last that long? Also, at this point, it is worth noting that there are free apps out there that let you do the same with your ordinary diary. So really, the cheapest way to go digital is to use a free app and take a picture of what you already have. If you still want a new gadget, your decision may depend on if you feel a big lump of plastic is more environmentally friendly or you prefer the features of the capture app that's being used over a free one. The final technology is real-time note-taking. Now, when I saw this, I instantly needed one. Then I remembered I type everything or use voice capture for meetings, so I'd never use it. However, that is not a reason not to want one. This more expensive tech uses a special pen and notebook and communicates in real time with an app so you can see what you're writing on screen as well as in the book. Also, like the others, it will recognize handwriting and convert to digital characters to allow pasting into other applications. At £110 for a notepad, the pen and the app, it isn't cheap, taking 18 years to break even and with the cheapest replacement notebook costing £16 as well, this will actually never break even. In conclusion, I recommend you stick to your diary and find an app you like to capture it. Or, if you have a laptop with touchscreen, you probably can do all of this anyway. For me, smart pens are not that smart when it comes to price. You do get what you pay for, though. Do you have a smart pen? Why not get in touch at TT Radio 2022 and follow us and tell us what you want to know about tech? I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome back. In the second half of my interview with Anthony, we talked about the transferability of civilian teaching practice to army training structures and considered what Armed Forces Day might represent, both to service personnel and to the wider public. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. So then, Anthony, tell us then how you're working as a teacher or a trainer in your current army role so yeah so um this week and again i, I will sort of sound check um big start the emotions academy for letting me have this, this week off um because i, I do greatly appreciate it um it's very much not a week off it, i have been working um so essentially the course i'm running at the moment is um the, the, the sort of names around it are changing but the easiest way to describe it it's, it was called defense trainer trainer and it's essentially the first um instructional course that soldiers need to do in order to teach other soldiers um, and that of course is common to regular and reserve it's a common syllabus it's got all the things that you would expect to see um, in any form of, of course so it's got a scheme of work it's got lessons it's got training objectives it's got klps <clears throat> it's got a set of assessment frameworks um, and it's it, it looks very familiar um, and essentially what the way i would describe it is it's a pgce in five days so it is very intense and i feel like on Monday, when I sort of stood up and I went through and said, you know, this is me, this is what I'm doing, this is my background, and I showed them the course timetable, um, the first thing they all looked at was the finish time on every day, which has been probably about one one thirty 
So I think they were. I think a lot of them were thinking, oh, okay, you know, one o'clock finished, he's happy with that. Um, I put my mobile number up and I said, you need to ring me on your lesson plan and ring me. I was getting phone calls at 11 o'clock last night. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually got a couple that I've just missed that I'm going to leave until the end of this and I'll ring them back. Yeah. Um, but I feel like I mean, I, one of the guys was saying to me about it today, he was like, you know, when you sort of get asked to teach a lesson, you sometimes just go and crack on with it and you, you don't think about the reward and how to make sure everyone's actually achieved the objective. And, you know, it's that task that I chose absolutely correct. So during the course, they do two days of lessons, which would be incredibly familiar um, to, to teachers. So they do roles and responsibilities of a defence trainer, which in, in another world is your teaching standards. Um, and you go through exactly what it is you're expected to do. You go through how to plan a lesson. The, the, the army have their own framework. So every lesson begins with this intro, which is your interest, your needs, your title, your range and your objectives. Um, it, it's not that dissimilar to probably what people would have been used to in a classroom with things like what one will for lesson objectives and things like that and keywords. Um, <clears throat> it's just put into quite a rigid framework because it is still the military. Um, from there, that's really the first sort of day of the course. At the end of the first day, they are allocated a lesson on a skill. Um, so the skills lessons ranged from uh, military ones, so like applying a tourniquet to a wound. Um, all the way through to tying a Windsor knot. And I allocated those based on um, what the people could do and how they got on with it. The point of that was not to test them on the skill. The point of it was to test them on how they delivered the skill. Um, so, for example, I think out of the class I had today, six out of seven of them have never tied a Windsor knot. They do mm. the old classic, the one that I can't do because I never learned how to do it. Um, and at the end of it, they could do it. And I was like, well, that clearly shows that the guy instructed has got it right because you can now all do it. Um, they will then, so, they, so on the Tuesday morning, they talk the first five minutes of that lesson as an icebreaker because some of them have never, never stood up and talked before. Um, this morning, they taught their full lesson. I'm actually um, really impressed by the standard, um, considering that they've had probably about seven or eight hours of instruction um, to go from nothing. I have people delivering lessons this morning with um, like multiple levels of differentiation. Um, so I had a, uh, a female lance corporal this morning um, deliver a lesson on uh, taking a bear in my map. And without being prompted, she's gone, right, okay, if you find it easier, do these. If you find it harder, do these. Levels of differentiation straight away. Now, I know for me personally, it took me a lot longer than eight hours to get to that standard where I was thinking about, okay, how do I get on with this? Um, they've done that today. They've also today been issued a knowledge lesson. So on Friday morning, they've got their final lesson where they just have to impart knowledge, which in I would suggest is is harder um, within the military setting because a lot of them are quite used to doing things practically. Mm. They're used to going into the kennels and taking the dogs out. They're used to clipping the dog up on the lead properly because there is a proper method of doing that. Um, they're used to uh, conducting searches. So the practicalities of things are quite uh, common to them. The idea of taking a big chunk of text in a scheme of work and imparting it through a lesson, whilst it's second nature to me and you and most other teachers, um, for them is something that's quite daunting. Uh, so those lessons are absolutely anything from but one on chemical warfare and the history of the Geneva Conventions on, on chemicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lesson on operational stress management. There's a lesson on diet and nutrition. There's a lesson on fire safety. And there's one guy who's doing really well, so I've given him the horrendous lesson, which is about avoiding collisions at sea. Right. <laughs> just, 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 just the marital law. 
Exactly, just for something a little bit different. But again, the point is they're not being tested on their ability to remember the, the, the knowledge or the skill. They're being tested on their ability to impart that knowledge through a defence framework in much the same way that many schools will have a set lesson framework. Every lesson starts with keywords. Every lesson next has the objectives. Um, it's just that obviously within the military sphere, it's a lot, a lot clearer. How do you test them on their ability to deliver this content? Is there a formal observation form that you go through with them? Yeah, so that's that's what they had this morning. So they had they had their, so yesterday morning they had what we call their IP, which is their initial practice. Um, that's five minutes. So the way we structured it is their thirty minute teaching practice they did today. They taught the first five minutes of that yesterday because there's no point getting them to double up on the work. Yeah. Um, I then they then got their final summative TP on Friday. And their final grade will be um, will be over the uh, over both of those. Um, it, it sounds a lot like everything hinges on that last one because it's the summative. However, uh, there is room for some flexibility. Um, what I will say, having seen standard today, um, I, I'm completely optimistic that I'll get 100% pass rate from these individuals. Um, and they've taken on board a lot of the. I've brought things from my civilian teaching role into the classroom. Things like. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Teach Life Champion, but um, no opt out, not allowing someone to opt out of a question because the standard response is don't know, which means go away. Um, and actually, I taught them that today. And even when people didn't know the answer, they were then going back and saying, oh, actually, because so and so said this, what's the answer? And being able to bring in those little bits, I know will make them better instructors. Um, but so yeah, how do you crack the don't know then with them? The don't what's the strategy for dealing with don't know? So with, with, with the don't know, essentially, if they genuinely don't know, or if they're being very, very, I just don't want to answer them, get a high ability student to answer the question and then get the other student to repeat it. Because anybody can repeat what somebody else said and get them to repeat it or write it down. That way you've eliminated the opting out. And that's something that I've used. I mean, I first picked that up when I was teaching in Swindon. Um, and I now, I now use it with adults. Mm -hmm. Because it's, it's very easy, particularly um, teaching in the recruit environment, which I'm not in at the moment. I'm teaching trained soldiers. Um, but in the recruit environment, when there is a lot to fit in, and you've got people working very long days away from home in a multiple, uh, you know, if they're in a barrack room with sort of eight, nine other people, might not be getting as much sleep as they're used to, might be a little bit homesick. Um, being able to ensure that everyone is picking up the content, particularly when you come to things like weapon training, mm -hmm. there isn't any room for error there. Um, and it's important, I feel definitely that my civilian teaching crosses over and vice versa in order to make me better in both sort of realms. <clears throat> so if we move from that kind of imparting of knowledge, knowledge-rich curriculum approach to the more practical elements of the weapons handling and the marksmanship, what do you notice in your students as they switch between these two forms of instruction? So we're, we're, we're a little bit of a crossroads at the moment. I, I actually attended a course um, last year where we had two instructors delivering the same course with two different methods. Um, and the, the model that the Army are working on now is one called Present, Apply, Review, which is actually very familiar to TEEP. Um, that, that I haven't researched it, but I will be shocked if two people have come up with those two models completely independently of each other. The idea of presenting new information, you know, prepare for learning, present new information and apply, I, I don't see they're far too similar for me not to have some form of common ancestry. Um, that's the way we're delivering pretty much all of our knowledge lessons. However, with certain lessons, there is still room for the old system, which was where you would explain, you would demonstrate, you would imitate, and you would practice. And actually today, um, one of the um, guys that I'm working with today, he 
actually reverted to that when he taught the wins or not. Because whilst it would have been great under the new framework to have gone, there's your instructions, the wind's not, there's a tie, crack on. Mm. It was actually far more applicable for him to go, right, put the tie around your neck, get the longer end in your right hand. Okay, loop it over, go that further, go no further. Right, then he teach stage two, then he went back to stage one, then he went as far as stage three, then back to stage one. And that that imitation and repetition, sometimes for a skill, um, particularly, um, again, you, you, you will have a very wide range of abilities um, when teaching recruits um, for a skill that that, mm. that imitation and repetition is still quite vital. Yeah, I have to say, actually, it reminds me of an emergency first aid course we did in our school at work um, two summers ago. And the guy doing the instruction was a former serviceman who'd moved into teaching first aid, amongst other things, in you know, the school sector. And it really was a case of this is what you've got to do. Go through it step by step. I'm going to do it. You do it. Now put it all together. And I have to say it really, really did drive home precisely what you had to do, how and when, when you're encountering your casualty in whatever situation they're in. It seems that it does still have a very, very strong currency. Absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm, I feel like in education, we, we, we do quite often revert to sort of four legs good, two legs bad whenever a new craze comes along. Mm. And we sort of look at a new fad and we sort of throw everything else out and start doing the new fad, whereas actually there are some things that are constant. So I'm, I'm actually a, um, I'm a ceremonial instructor as well. So I'm, I'm a drill instructor. Um, and when it comes to uh, you know, parading and things like that, it, it's done to numbers and it's done that way for a reason because that's the most efficient way to do it. Um, and it's not just in the military environment. If you think about um, dancers, for example, Mm. If you if you learn to, if you learn to dance if you look at strictly and things like that it's all done to numbers the movements are all done to numbers and then they're repeated and repeated and repeated um, and yes obviously within within teaching and I was trying to explain this to the um to the guys I've got on the course today because they're very used to the numbers approach and the drill approach and the chanting which is commonly common across both military and civilian education and I was trying to say to them actually as I've said to PGC students in the past. Don't be afraid to take a step back and give them the information. There's absolutely nothing wrong with giving a group a group of um, of trained soldiers, if they're not just recruits, a copy of the pamphlet and saying, guys, I want you to find the answer and put it up on that whiteboard for me. That's eliciting the answers. But sometimes there is definitely a place for learning things as a drill. Um, the same as when I taught foundation maths at the school I used to teach at, and you've got all of the um, the songs around the averages and things. I'm not going to sing that to you on here. But that's that's still a, um, a relevant way of repetition and getting knowledge into people's heads that you can then sort of um, apply in a different way, in possibly a more um, a, a less rigid way. Certainly. And if we think again about this course that you're delivering now, how did it differ from the course that you were taken through when you were trained to be a trainer? Um, it's a completely different course. So, so when when I went through. The whole model was EDIP, and it was explain, demonstrate, imitate, practice, and it didn't matter what lesson you were doing. Now, um, whether the army changed it for this reason, I don't know, but my perception of it is that if you chose to, you could entirely opt out of that lesson until the imitation phase. Um, you could sit there looking out the window while the trainer was explaining and demonstrating, and then just copy them on the imitate. The problem then was you had, I believe, it was 40% of the lesson was set aside for practice. Mm. And you're there practicing, not knowing what you're doing. So you're actually then to you know to use a um, to use a sort of civilian teaching analogy, you're, you're you're applying practice to something you don't have mastery of. Mm -hmm. 
whereas um, whereas within this new model with, with present apply review it does seem to be a lot better and it also allows you because you haven't got the whole group following you on stages it allows you to cut people away to do certain bits um, again the group I'm teaching today um, one of them is actually a I think she's got civilian mountain leader qualifications she goes hill walking for a hobby um, she's done I think Chamonix I think she's done snow all these mountain peaks things I've got very little interest in um, but because she was at that level when it came to map reading the person that ended up teaching the map lesson was like okay no worries I'd like you to go and help so and so there isn't the room for that within the old model mm. so whilst the sort of governmental systems and the military is an extension of that and there is an argument that the military is sort of 40 years behind the rest of society and the guards are another 20 behind that um but actually it is changing and it is changing for the better and i think there's been a recognition that the the changing teaching methods is leading to a, a, a better product and a and i think there's a real misconception um and it could possibly be from american films like full metal jacket that you you're sort of a mindless automaton and that you're, you're sort of told what to do um the british army is made up of thinking soldiers um and you, the, the onus is on you to use your initiative mm. um and i believe that's now being reflected in the way you're being instructed potentially that wasn't the case when i joined sort of 16 years ago so who at the moment or which body at the moment is responsible for setting the taught curriculum as it were within the army uh are you, do you know what I would, I would not like to hazard a guess because there are so many owners of policy. The ones who deliver it um, mm -hmm. are the ETS, which is the Education and Training Services. Um, to what extent that they actually write the policy, uh, I am unaware. I know that most policy will emanate from um, Army HQ. However, um, to, to give an example, uh, if you're weapons training, you will use the weapons pamphlets. Those are written by um, the Small Arms School Corps and the Infantry Battle School in Brecon. The same with Fieldcraft. Um, I believe what happens is the subject matter experts on on the thing will write mm -hmm. the pamphlet on it, and then that will be then validated by Army HQ. I believe that's what happens. Again, I'm not an expert on that. I sort of just get it and deliver it. Yeah. There's a sense to which I suppose that's rather similar to the classroom experience of the classroom teacher in many cases. We, we don't necessarily actually get to meet very regularly the people who are designing the stuff that we teach. We're, we're just given it and asked to get on with the job. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. That's a fascinating insight into how training happens within the army. Um, if we look forward to the coming week now, we've got Armed Forces Day coming up, which, with my understanding of how it's developed, is that it evolved from Gordon Brown's Veterans Day that was established in 2006 and then was rebranded as Armed Forces Day in 2009. There are nationwide events happening this weekend. I'm hoping I might get to see some of the event that's taking place in Scarborough myself on Saturday afternoon. I think we've got the Red Arrows turning up. I mean, did, you, a few did, other... you, know, did you know it's actually Reserves Day today? <laughs> is it Reserves Day today? It is res it's Reserves Day today. I, I know that because I've had various messages from friends of mine that my photo has been plastered all over the uh, regiment's Facebook page. So I'm eternally grateful to the uh, the regimental person who did that without giving me any warning on it. But <laughs> Fantastic. So how does Reserves Day itself fit into the wider view of the armed forces that we've got coming up? Uh, I know that normally it's uh, it's based around things like where you from to work day, um, which is supposed to raise awareness for the reserves. It's not something I've ever done um, because... Again, I like to keep it separate, um, relatively separate anyway. 
uh, and just the practicalities of wearing wearing sort of green tips to school is not something I've ever uh, I've never decided to do. Um, but I know in terms of in terms of Armed Forces Day, um, I know that it's very intermittent across the country in in terms of which it's celebrated. Um, for example, I'm, I'm from near Bristol, and there is nothing in Bristol happening because the council haven't organised anything. Uh, whereas there is a relatively big event in Western Supermare. Um, now to contrast that with if you go up to Edinburgh, um, where uh, actually a friend of mine um, is the Garrison Sergeant Major up there, um, excellent guy. Um, I know that they're having a huge event up at Ed- based around Edinburgh Castle this weekend with bands and parades and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and whilst I don't know whether or not it's something that, that culturally we we maybe struggle with this this celebration of the military. I know it's very different in America, um, and I think that we potentially as a, so- a society are maybe struggling to celebrate the military without celebrating militarism, which I think are two different things, but are quite often conflated. They can um, be, can't they? Yeah, but I, I find it very humbling and, and almost embarrassing in America when I was over there with uh, with my wife, the way that it, the military treated so differently over there. You know, it was, I went to go and see a, a museum ship over there and because it said, oh, if you've got a military ID, you get in for a little bit a little bit cheaper and being quite tight. I thought, okay, I'll try and save some money. Um, she have a military ID and I'm, I'm getting a salute off the guy on the gangplank. And I'm like, hang on a minute, like this isn't this isn't the way we do it in Britain, <laughs> you know. Um, so I don't know if, if with Armed Forces Day it was something that's been launched and we haven't really considered how, how culturally we come to terms with that as a country. Um, but I do know how I'll be spending it. I'm going to be going to a public house run by a former veteran on on Saturday and just seeing some friends um, and I've told my wife I will definitely be home early. Yeah, I can certainly see some very, very good and valuable reasons for Armed Forces Day myself. Partly, I suppose, it gives the families the opportunity to celebrate what their family members do in a kind of ceremonial way, which I think is quite important to acknowledge because, of course, the families make sacrifices in supporting Servicemen yeah, I, I would be interested to know what the what the opinion of, of uh, a regular soldier would be on this, um, because for me, doing the job I do in City Street, um, it kind of sneaks up on me around the time mm. of exam season, and, and I'm kind of like, okay, exams, wow, and you sort of take a deep breath and go, oh, it's on horse today, I haven't organised anything. Um, now, to, to couple that with sort of Remembrance Sunday later on in the year, you've got months to plan for it, and there are always quite a few of us that will end up meeting up. Um, in that time so i just i wonder if it's just something that because it's quite new it hasn't quite embedded in the psyche of the nation yet and maybe we we haven't thought about how we how we celebrate it and it celebrates even the correct term yeah um, so i, I, I think, certainly agree I with that one but i think there's definitely a sense that you know it gives the public an opportunity to see where part of the money that we spend in taxes goes in terms of defense on these people on these machines on this equipment so i think it's valuable in that sense too the other question I suppose I would ask is, does the British general public really understand the breadth and variety of roles that armed forces personnel perform in 2022? I mean, it's not just going to war. It's all kinds of stuff. No, it's not. Um, I, I don't think that, if I'm honest, I don't think the British Army even understands the variety of roles that it's got. And I say that slightly tongue-in-cheek, but when I've uh, been out on external attachments to other units, or I've gone and uh, conducted training for other units. Um, I've got a very distinctive cap badge being in the veterinary corps, and I keep going, oh, what, what unit's that? It's like, well, you know, I'm veterinary corps, I'm a dog handler. Oh, okay, I didn't know there was reserves. So, so there's not even, I feel like there's even a sort of 
within I think within the military you sort of in your little regimental family and you don't mm. tend to leave that for quite a long time and it, and you're in this little bubble and I feel like you might have an idea of oh yeah there's engineers over there or there's so and so over there but actually knowing what they do is quite difficult and I feel like if if to an extent we kind of don't understand our massive massive capabilities ourselves then how are the general public supposed to understand um, but there is essentially a role I would say pretty much every civilian job there is a military role within it, even down to barriers. You know, we've got guys up at the Defence Animal Centre and in London with the Household Cavalry that work with horses. Um, all of our officers within the corps that I'm in are vets. Um, one of my best friends, best man at the wedding, is an engineer officer. Um, so th there is certainly a mass variety of roles. I mean, as I said to you when we had our pre-meeting, wasn't going to come on here and do a big recruiting thing because I, as much as I passionately believe in the military and it's something that's been a huge part of my life, it's not for everybody. Um, and if it was for everybody, we, we wouldn't need a military. I, I believe that it's there to protect people who maybe that sort of thing it's not for. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, it's, I think we could probably do a bit of an awareness campaign. And I feel that actually the way that, the way that it's been done in recent years where the recruiting has changed and actually it's, it's, it's moved towards sort of acquiring people with these soft skills that potentially we need. Um, I can remember years ago uh, being told, oh, you know, you won't need to play PlayStation when you're older, et cetera, et cetera. Um, if you now look at the control panel for a drone that are yeah. being used to great effect in the Ukraine at the moment, and we've got masses of um, reconnaissance drones in the British Army, it's pretty much identical. Mm -hmm. um, and whether that's by accident or design, it's we, we've still got people coming in with these skills that are valuable. It's not just about big brutes doing the traditional the traditional infantry role, which there's definitely a place for. Mm -hmm. um, but there is definitely a role for everyone, and certainly it's opened up a lot more to to, to women. Um, particularly uh, since I joined. Yeah, I mean, if we look at the different roles that the army perform as part of their natural work and the army perform as part of an extension of the work they do, just because they're a group of people who've been trained to do things in particular ways, it always quite annoys me the number of times, particularly when there's some kind of um, potential logistics crisis in the nation, the number of people who go onto social media essentially rewriting an army serviceman's or servicewoman's job description so they can drive petrol tankers or so they can you know man a particular place that needs manning yeah people have people have very short memories and those those nightingale hospitals didn't spring out of nowhere um because it was my old corps that actually built them um, and i i don't think that the general public actually know to what extent the military supported the covid response um, so again, one of my best mates, my best man, he um, spent the entirety of it essentially coordinating the, the response to COVID um, at his level. Um, and I, I feel like that was something that the military has kept very much to itself. Um, it's the same with, for instance, the camp I'm on now. Um, the guys that did the Afghan evacuation, they've just received their medals for that, for that today. Um, and I think the knowledge of what they went through out there, it, I think people should know exactly what they did and just how brave they were, because having done an operational tour probably at the height of the fight in Afghanistan mm. and having heard some of the humanitarian stories that came from the Afghan evacuation I know which one I rather would have done and it wasn't the recent one. Mm. Yeah that's quite a sobering thought to finish on perhaps. Before we wrap the interview up then could we just perhaps think about any advice to listeners who might be considering becoming a reservist what kind of things should they bear in mind do you think? Um, so I would say the the one thing 
the a reservist can work on in their spare time without going anywhere near a reserve centre or anything else just to get yourself fit. Um, it is the one thing that if you can turn up fit and motivated that the regular soldiers will, you know, welcome you with open arms. Because that's all they want to know at the end of the day. Can you keep up with them? The rest of it, the soft skills, they can fill in the gaps. They won't expect you to be at 100% the same level as them because you do it for 19 or 28 days a year and they do it for 365 days a year. So, and the fitness tests have recently changed and they are not easy. They are eminently achievable, um, but they're not easy. It's not the sort of thing that particularly when you get over the ground at the age of 30 that you can just rock up and expect to pass. Mm. Um, I do a lot of training um, in order to sort of keep myself fit for role because I'm very proud of the fact that I'm fit for role and I'm fit for deployment. Um, in terms of joining as a, as a teacher, potentially, there are um, commission roles open. So you can actually join as a, as a commission teacher in the ECS as a reservist. Um, what I would say is that would need careful deconfliction with um, with any any people, any sort of workplace. Um, and be honest with your head teachers. Be honest. If you're going to join, be honest, because it's you'll get a lot more credit further down the road for it. And, and don't be afraid to negotiate. Like if there's, if there's work needs doing, and there's maybe a small TLR on offer, that, that's how I've got time off to come and do this. Um, but essentially, I feel like it's a big commitment, but it's not for everyone, but it's a commitment that actually, if you really want to do it, you will find a way to do it. I play rugby, I'm a brand out in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, I've got a family, I've got a little girl, I'm about to have another child, um, you know, I run a house, things like that. Um, I fit a lot into my sort of time on this planet, and I feel like if you're going to think about joining the reserves it's something you need to do a lot of thought with because it is it is too much of a commitment um to do sort of half-heartedly having said that it is intensely rewarding um my my experience of the reserves has been 95 percent positive now i say 95 because nothing's ever perfect um but the ability to be able to come on to events that i want to within reason um means that the training that's put on because we're not a captive audience is usually very very good um and it's interesting uh and i would say that i would not have done 16 years under the um the sort of auspices of being a teacher as well which has come with its own challenges if it wasn't something that was positive and there's been direct crossover i've used my first aid skills in school um i've used my teaching skills to instruct in the army and the the two jobs have complemented each other and have made me a better teacher and a better instructor and it stops me from just eating all the food in the fridge and getting really fat. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, Anthony, it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you tonight. And there's a considerable amount there for our listeners to think about, certainly in terms of this crossover between teaching in the classroom and teaching in the barracks and teaching on the battlefield, potentially, as well. And then this idea about Armed Forces Day and what we could perhaps um do in terms of making it clearer to the public what our forces personnel do. There's been some absolutely wonderful uh, areas for us to consider for future shows, I think. I understand you're off to work in a pupil referral unit. I am, yeah. I've decided to make life even even easier for myself. Um, yeah, I want to do something a little bit different. And um, yeah, I'm going to be blunt. There are the schools that people don't want to work in, which means that's precisely why people like me should probably go and work there um and i feel like i can do some real good there i feel like if people don't go and work in these schools then these young people get given up on uh, and when i think about the potential the challenges that i had in my childhood which if it wasn't for my grandfather um that would have been me quite frankly um so actually i feel like if i can do a little bit of good and 
teach in a very different environment. I want to try and work towards getting my Senko qualification as well through that, um, because the place I'm going to is vast, vast majority EHCP. Um, I feel like that's another string to my bow professionally. Um, so yeah, it's a going to be a new challenge, but I like a challenge. So we'll um, we'll see how September goes. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we wish you all the luck in the world with it, and it'd be great to perhaps have you back on a future show once you've settled into that new role and let us know how you're doing. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. I'd be interested to sort of share uh, share any observations because, again, I feel like. Well, I'm very sorry. We seem to have lost the last little section of the clip there, but Anthony was going on to say how he was going to continue his teaching work in the pupil referral unit, and hopefully we'll get him back on the show to talk about that at a future date. Well, it just leaves me now to say we've reached the end of another late show in which I've learned a considerable amount about life in the 21st century armed forces. I think what Anthony's experience demonstrates is that however all-consuming we think teaching might be as a career, there is always scope for developing ourselves and others in the classroom and outside the classroom. In the UK Armed Forces Reserve, we have teachers and trainers working alongside caterers, logistics specialists, cybersecurity experts, human resources officers, nurses and medics, communications operators, mechanics, intelligence officers, police officers, surveyors, engineers, metal workers, dog handlers, as we've heard, chaplains and veterinary officers, both on the battlefield and in barrack towns up and down the country. Such undertakings clearly require excellent time management skills, well-developed abilities for flexible planning, high levels of physical fitness and the support of family and friends. The challenges that UK Armed Forces personnel, both in regular service and the reserves look likely to grow in the future. The 2021 Integrated Review and Defence Command paper, which sets out the UK's ambitions to 2030, may well need to be revised once the final outcome of the conflict in Ukraine is known. In the same way, the Reserve Forces Review, published in 2021, has shown year-on-year -year rises in numbers serving in the maritime Army and Navy Reserves between April 2014 and April 2019, and argues that the front is no longer a physical thing that exists in a theatre of operations abroad, but sits inside our economic base, our networks, our supply chains, across the electromagnetic spectrum, and intrudes into everyday living through social media networks. This is where reservists routinely work. The central theme of the Reserve Forces Review is best encapsulated in the explicit commitment to, quote, even greater integration of the reserves with the regulars and the wider defence enterprise, end quote. If the Ukraine conflict has taught us anything, it is probably that in the absence of a universal period of national service, a well-trained and well-equipped reserve is vital to the UK's wider defence strategy. I hope Anthony's experience this evening has given you an insight into the often unacknowledged roles that armed forces personnel undertake on behalf of us all. 
Thank you again to Anthony Crocker for your generous conversation. Thank you to Chloe Hobbs and the MOD team for facilitating this conversation tonight. And thanks to everyone who's tuned in or is listening back to this as a podcast. If you don't already know, tickets for the Teachers Talk Radio Party in Manchester on the 2nd of July have gone on sale. So check out the website at www.ttradio.org.uk for further information. I'll be in Manchester by some point in the early afternoon next Saturday, and I'm looking forward to seeing some of you there. Don't forget that you can also download and catch up with every Teachers Talk radio show on the website's Listen Again facility, now conveniently searchable by show topic. That's it from me for this month. So thank you again for listening. Keep going until the end of the term. The finish line is surely in sight. And we will speak again in July. Until then, thank you and good night. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.